Well, this morning, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7. I'll, you can find that passage on page 961 in the Black Hardback Pew Bible in front of you. And I'll also bring the text up on the screen. be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Listen to the reading of God's holy word. So Easter is often uh, treated as a kind of second-tier holiday, culturally speaking. It's hard to beat the one where you get a bunch of presents. And so, although I will find that I find a lot, a lot of men, not exclusively men, but a lot of men will tell me their favorite holiday is Thanksgiving because it's one day, one meal, and you just get it over with. You don't have to wrap nothing, right? That's the, and you have to do all the shopping stuff, right? And we get to eat. That's, that's the, that's usually what I hear. And just, Easter just doesn't have the same hype as some of these other holidays, in part because it doesn't have the same cultural traditions uh, surrounding it. Um, But for Christians, Easter ought to be the most important holiday of the year. And as any old school Protestant will tell you, we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday because uh, the resurrection is the reason we worship on the first day of the week as opposed to the last But what is it exactly that we're worshiping, that we're celebrating today? Well, we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then the question comes, why does it matter that some guy in the Middle East got killed by the Romans 2,000 years ago? Why does that make any difference to me other than an interesting historical trivia? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, the resurrection is not just amazing. It's not just a miracle. The resurrection of Jesus is everything for the church. Without the resurrection, Paul says, he later on says in chapter 15, that he and everyone who preaches about the resurrection of Jesus is lying. In worst case scenario, or at best, misrepresenting God. Further, he says, if the resurrection is not true, then it means that our faith is in vain, that we are still in our sins, and that we should be pitied, especially those who have suffered and died for nothing. And while Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he does go on to address uh, some uh, disbelief in the resurrection in his own time, we have to deal with the disbelief of the resurrection in our own time, and because it's of a different nature. 
And so today, we are going to answer some of the major objections to the resurrection, uh, and then we're going to very briefly at the end see exactly what Paul has to say about it, why the resurrection is everything for Christians. And so we're going to look first at objections to the resurrection of Christ. Now, the resurrection of Christ has been around for a long time, 2,000 years or so, and so over 2,000 years there's been a lot of objections to the resurrection. And so it's impossible to go through all of them one at a time today, And because uh, I assume we all want to eat uh, in just a bit. Uh, so what I've done is basically broken them down and, and put them lar- into three buckets, okay? Three buckets, beginning with natural objections, and the second bucket, historical objections, and the third bucket, psychological objections. And even then, I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm going to highlight what I consider to be the most prominent, popular, or, or I would say the best arguments against the resurrection, and we'll deal with those. And the first uh, is natural objections. And real, we're, we're dealing with variations of essentially one central kind of logical argument that is often presented, which is basically in this way, and I've got it up here. So this is, a, this is in a syllogism, which is a logical syllogism. And so the major premise is miracles are impossible. The resurrection is a miracle. Therefore, the resurrection is impossible. Okay. Or to put it another way, people put it in a different way, the natural order cannot be violated. The resurrection is a violation of the natural order. Therefore, the resurrection is impossible. Now, Christians do not object that resurrection violates the natural order. It does. We are well aware that when people die, they don't come back to life bodily. That is what makes Jesus' resurrection all the more exceptional. Our problem, then, is with the first statement. The first statement of that miracles are impossible or that the natural order cannot be violated. Problem because there are all types of things that go here. You know, there are all types of things that exist and we believe they exist even though we have not personally observed them or we cannot actually prove they exist. You know, we know a ton about how our bodies work. We don't know a lot about why they work that way. We cannot yet explain things like consciousness. Why, when humanity is left to its own devices, we, we are drawn to, to immaterial uh, things that you can't prove exist like love or even music. I mean, music is what? Just the repetition the mathematical repetition of tonal sounds. So why do we call it music, right? It's something, it's, it's a category that we assign to it. Why do we talk about pleasure when it comes to music? And we, we don't know, we can't explain why we're moved as human beings to search for meaning and purpose in life. We cannot explain this draw we have to the transcendent. We cannot explain why even atheist authors like David Foster Wallace, before he killed himself, gave that famous speech where he said, we were, we were, we were basically programmed for worship. 
that we're always worshiping something. Further, they said that, that initial statement of, uh, of, of you, you know, miracles are impossible or you cannot violate the natural order is, uh, is a problem logically because you cannot prove that statement. You cannot prove a negative, right? If you came to me and said, Eric, prove to me you're not an alien. I was like, well, here's my birth certificate. And they're like, fake, right? And they're like, well, this is my wife. She can attest to it. You're like, uh, she's either in it with you or you duped her. Like, there's nothing I can do to prove that I'm not an alien, Okay. Uh, or to say that you can't, like you, or to say, or to say that the natural order cannot be violated is to you know, to, to try to prove a negative. It's like saying Batman does not exist because I only watch Marvel movies and they never talk about it. Right. So it's impossible to prove that miracles are impossible. You might say you've never observed a miracle, or you don't know someone who has personally observed a miracle. But there are others who claim to have observed, experienced, or to know others who have experienced miracles. This also raises the issue of even how we know things at all. You know, I, I, I have not personally been to Mars, but I have no doubt that it exists. There are pictures, we've sent rovers, there's testimony, there's disciplines like astronomy that study it. There's evidence, there's history, there's testimony. And so, you know, is it possible that it's all fake and some vast conspiracy? I'm sure there's a Reddit thread somewhere that is claiming that, right? There's somebody on the internet who believes that, but that's not probable. What makes sense, taking all the evidence together, is that Mars exists. Because how else do we get Mars bars, right? You can't explain it otherwise. And so now, this doesn't mean that someone cannot say, well, I just don't accept the supernatural. You can do that. But to do that at the outset, to just say, I reject the supernatural, is a statement of faith. Because it is not something you can prove. Right, Because you cannot prove the supernatural. The very word means that which transcends the natural order. And so, yes, normally miracles don't happen. That's why they're called miracles. Resurrection doesn't happen normally. But what if one did? Not a bunch of times, but one time it did. What if it happened a long time ago? What would that account in history look like? And this is what brings us to historical objections. This is where we're going to spend the majority of our time because there's lots and lots of these, uh, but we're actually going to spend most of our time with dealing with uh, one objection, and that is that resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus specifically, is a legend that came along after the historical Jesus lived, that there was probably some guy named Jesus who was a failed rebel leader, some kind of political or social activist. He's kind of like a Jewish Gandhi kind of guy. And so, and, and he was executed by the Romans. And, and in time, for some unknown reason, his followers uh, exalted him. And then they established this thing called the church. And then the church had to backfill uh, you know, the, with these fantastical stories about Jesus in order to kind of answer some problematic questions about the authority of the church. And, and many unbelieving scholars actually argue that Christianity was not founded by Jesus, but was founded by Paul, that essentially what the gospel writers did was they were just kind of retconning 
for Paul. They're kind of just writing some gospel accounts to back Paul up. In reality, what they say is that uh, what happened here is some guys got together and mixed Judaism with Greek-Roman mythology, with some mystery religions and some messianic uh, you know, uh, cult stuff, and, uh, and, and basically it, you just kind of, that's how you get Christianity. You just put that in there, put it in the oven, and out comes the church. They will even they will go on to argue as well, even from about vocab, saying that um, uh, saying that resurrection can mean things other than bodily animation. That uh, resurrection, uh, you know, um, doesn't have to mean reversal of death. Uh, that a dead body came back to life. Uh, you know, stories of resurrection were probably just ancient metaphors referring to the veneration of Jesus uh, in order to uh, certify him, to give him some divine status. And, and, and for this kind of ancient superstitious people who are afraid of death, you know, the idea of resurrection was probably very comforting. It made death more acceptable, more palatable, less scary, because now they could redefine it. And you take that all together, and that sounds very reasonable. It sounds very learned. This is a, a, largely the, the position of many scholars and people with graduate degrees and who, who, when they're talking about how religion rises up. And, um, and, and, but in actuality, when you start looking at it, and you start looking at the history, and you start looking at what the Romans and the Greeks thought, and you start looking at what the Christians thought, and how they acted and operated, uh, I mean, some of what I just said is actually going to sound pretty silly, and, and, and not to mention just downright kind of condescending <laughs> towards ancient people. Because, you know, whatever we may think about uh, these types of things in, 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 in today, the people back in those times were not idiots, okay? If you, and if you want proof of that, go read some Aristotle and tell me he was a dummy, right? So what is the Christian response? Well, the, the Christian response is first that in Jesus' time, people knew what, resur- what resurrection meant, and resurrection in that time only had one meaning. It meant bodily reanimation. Whatever moderns have done with the, world, with the definition of, rev, of, res, of, um, of resurrection, it had a very clear meaning in the ancient world. It wasn't uh, redefining or redescribing death. Resurrection was nothing less than the description of someone who came back to life. And even more, not only did they know what it was, but Romans thought it was impossible. You go talk to Romans, you go read Greek mythology, which they Romanized and they took into heart. And when they talked about Hades and the road to Hades, it wasn't paved with good intentions. There was only one way there and you don't come back out. Resurrection was impossible, laughably so. How would you defy the will of Jupiter or Zeus? You can't do that. You go to Hades, you stay there. 
Even the Jews, not all Jews believed in resurrection. The Sadducees uh, didn't believe in, res- in resurrection, so it was a joke. They're sad, you see. But they also, um, uh, but they believed in an eternal disembodied state, so they didn't believe in a resurrection coming. But the, but the rest of the Jews did, especially the Pharisees, and they did, so, and most of them believed in it. Even those who believed in resurrection, they, they said that's only going to happen at the very end when the Messiah comes back, and it certainly isn't going to, it, it's certainly not this guy that we just killed on a cross. That's not the Messiah, so it ain't now. So don't talk to me about resurrection now. Even Jesus' own disciples did not believe the resurrection would happen. And when Jesus was killed, they were afraid and ran away. And then something changed their minds. Now, in response to the idea that, you know, that they're adding resurrection to Jesus in order to kind of pump up his cred, uh, that, well, the thing is, in trying to appeal to the Romans... To be like, oh, you should believe in Jesus because he is God. He was resurrected and he came back from the dead. Well, you did not, in order, to, Romans didn't deify people by resurrecting them. They could deify somebody and they could be dead in a tomb. They didn't care, all right? They did it to emperors, right? So they said, you didn't have to resurrect someone in order to deify them in the Roman culture. And so, and, and so, the, and simply the, the point here is that, uh, is that if, if you're trying to appeal, if you're making something up, if you're inventing something, inventing a story, and you're trying to appeal to the Romans on the one hand and the Jews on the other, and so you say, hey, this thing that the Romans say is impossible and that the Jews say is going to happen eventually but certainly didn't happen right now and there's no way it happened, especially surrounding this dude, let's take that thing and make it the center point of our faith doesn't make any sense if you're making it up, if you're inventing it, especially for guys who didn't even believe it, especially when it can be so easily disproved. All you got to do is pull the body out. Now, as far you know, and so one of the things that's uh, that the reason that these uh, this objection comes up to the resurrection is that they will say, look, there was a lot of speculation about what happened to you after you die from the on the from the from the Romans to the Jews, but what's remarkable is that that is true, but what's remarkable is that er, from the earliest days of the church, there was no spectrum of what happened to you after you die. The Christians were remarkably unified in their understanding. That when you, that of what happened when you die because they based everything on the resurrection of Jesus. Is that the center point of Christian understanding of the afterlife? And so, and, these, and remember, these are people coming from Jewish backgrounds where there was a ton of speculation. They're coming from Roman Gentile backgrounds where there's a ton of speculation. All of a sudden, they get into the church, and they're unified around this thing that is unaccepted and rejected by the broader culture. And we'll talk about it in, in, a, in a bit, but, uh, but the Apostle Paul, uh, he, he clearly believed that Jesus was raised bodily, and he believed that because Jesus was raised from the dead, his followers would be raised from the dead too in the end, that they would have a bodily resurrection. Let's see here, get, my, get myself caught up on my slides here. Okay. 
And also the idea that the Gospels are essentially late additions in order to, uh, in order to, in order to kind of pump Paul up, uh, it just it doesn't work. The Gospels are too unique. They don't read like myths. If you go talk to people who write, who, write, uh, who study, I mean, Greek, uh, C.S. Lewis, we know he's a Christian, but, he, but his expertise was in ancient mythology. And one of the things he would tell you is that the Gospels don't read like ancient myths. They just don't. They read more like ancient biographies. And so, and, and so this, these are not guys who set out to write ancient myths, all right? And so it, they don't work. And the Gospels do have the same basic shapes, the, the same basic story surrounding Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But each one has such a unique design that the idea that they were written in collaboration with one another is honestly a bit silly. Further, the Gospels contain elements that, that anyone who is trying to invent a religion is, uh, it, it, and they're trying to appeal to the masses, they would not include these things. There's just some belief killers that are put into the Gospels if they're trying to appeal to the broader culture. For instance, you have the guys going around preaching about Jesus and saying, listen to us. And uh, you should read our Gospels that tell us what, fool, you know, what clueless fools we were the entire time. All right? I just think of like, um, you know, uh, the, whenever people are trying to get people to buy into a cult that's false, a cult of personality, whatever it is, I mean, just kind of it's like, you know, when, whenever Russia would have an election, Vladimir Putin would get 97% of the vote, you know? And I'm, su- I'm sure it was humble in his own mind to give the opposition 3%. When he, when he put the instructions out to report the totals, right? You don't paint yourself in a bad light if you're trying to lead a movement. And they're like, hey, look what idiots we were, right? And then also, and this is, and this is one thing a lot of people miss, is the fact that the first witnesses at the tomb and, and the first witnesses to the resurrected Christ were women. In the ancient world, Women were not even allowed to give testimony in court because they were not considered credible witnesses. I'm not agreeing with that, but that was the reality. And so if you're trying to fake a story and do a legit resurrection, you're not, gonna, you're not going to put women as the first witnesses who believe even before the disciples believed. And that is something that is recorded not in one, not two, not three, but all four of the Gospels. And so, and so it's interesting when you think about it, because um, uh, so when you think about this as, as we look at it, because when, there, when I'm reading it, and I get these two pictures of the ancient writers from secular scholars, is that on the one hand, the guys who wrote the Gospels and stuff, they, they're just kind of, they're like superstitious children who are sloppy editors to boot. They just believe whatever they're told, and they don't really care about history. They're just kind of moving things along for some reason. And then on the other hand, they're diabolical conspirators who expertly know how to craft myths and legends in order to manipulate Roman and Jewish audiences to believe their lies, lies and untruths which the authors and which, uh, for which the authors and the original apostles went and were willing to be tortured and killed for, by the way. 
They never got rich. They never wanted to get rich. Apparently, they just wanted to invent a religion so they could go get murdered. Now, there have been a lot of other arguments for a long time uh, that the resurrection was um, faked, that it was, uh, that it was a conspiracy, um, that, that it was a conspiracy on the part of Jesus and the disciples. Um, let's see here, my whole thing reset here. So, But uh, they, they'll say that Jesus, his disciples stole the dead body. Uh, Jesus didn't really die, something called swoon theory. He's all been around for a very, very long time. I've actually talked about them in other sermons before. Um, but the thing is, is all, these, uh, all these theories require that Roman executioners don't know how to kill their own prisoners. And Romans were pretty good at doing their job. Roman executioners were really good at executing people because they say, when you love what you do, you never work a day in your life, you know? And Roman executioners, they just... They never worked because they loved their job so much and they were so good at it. It requires us to believe the disciples who were uneducated fishermen, tax collectors, and the like somehow knew how to distract Roman guards whose lives were on the line, open up a tomb, remove the body without anyone seeing it, without anyone reporting it or knowing it. And then we're still, even if we go with that, we're left with the question, why? Again, they all died for this. Why would they do it if they're faking it, if they're lying about it? Now, one more line of thinking about this uh, is, is the movement of the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. Of, of the top, you know, the, the Old Testament and, and the Old Testament, the Old Covenant had a lot of commands. Right, over 600 commands. But they had their top 10. And we're familiar largely with the top 10. And the first three have to do with directly, uh, directly with God, how we relate to God, or how many gods we worship, how we worship Him, how we regard His name. And then the first commandment that doesn't have to do with how we directly deal with God has to do with keeping the Sabbath, the day of rest and worship, which was on the last day of the week. It was the sign of the covenant, of the old covenant that God had with the people. It was a sign of his people's obedience. It was a sign of the people belonging to God. And in Jesus' time, the people were obsessive about keeping the Sabbath. And yet very early on, the Christian church started worshiping on Sunday. That is more than moving band practice from Wednesday to Thursday. I mean, it's more like moving college football from Saturday to Monday. I mean, maybe not quite that, that important. But, but something massive would have to occur within the organization for them to do that, right? Some fundamental thing must have changed. So what was it that caused these Jewish Christians to suddenly change one of the very central tenets of their faith? Well, from the earliest records, even from the New Testament itself, it is because Sunday is the day of resurrection. It is the Lord's day, the first day of the week. And so these early Christians would, would not have made resurrection of, the resurrection of Jesus the center of their faith and hope after death 
would not have made it the reason for the movement of their, of, of their worship, one of the most important commandments for the people of God, unless something happened that they couldn't explain. Something that drove these men, these women, these, and many others to believe truly that Jesus was raised from the dead. And this brings us to psychological objections. And so this is much more brief than the, than, than the, the second bucket that we are in. This is our third bucket. So we've talked about historical objections. We've talked about historic. Uh, sorry, we've talked about uh, natural objections, historical objections, and now we are talking about psychological objections. Because some will say, in response to all this, okay, fine. Maybe they weren't lying. Maybe they were deluded. Maybe maybe they were maybe they were sincerely deceived or self-deceived uh, because they hallucinated what they saw, or maybe they just couldn't handle it mentally, that their leader was dead, and so they started making up stories. Maybe they just genuinely believed it, but they were just wrong. Well, and so, and so, one, so some have said, look, you know, ancient people, they, have, they talk about visions. The Greeks and the Romans, they talked about having visions, and, and, so, did, and so, did, uh, so did the Jews. And so maybe they, maybe, maybe they thought they had a vision. Maybe, maybe, maybe they mistook a vision of Jesus that was just like a dream, and they just said, oh, he's resurrected from the dead. Well, it's true that ancient audiences did believe in, both Gentile and, and Christian and Jews, all did believe in visions, divine visions from God, uh, but they knew the difference between a vision and a bodily resurrection. Again, they know what the word resurrection means. And further, the, the testimony, um, you know, this, this testimony about seeing Jesus that we have from the Gospels, it's not about, you know, I saw Jesus in my morning toast. He came out of the toaster. It was awesome. I'm putting it up on eBay. I'm going to make a lot of money, right? They saw Jesus. They spoke with Jesus. They walked along the road with Jesus. They ate food with Jesus. They saw his wounds, which unmistakably identified him as the Messiah. And even more, it wasn't just isolated instances. It wasn't like my grandmother's second cousin in the dark, you know, uh, you know and she had taken a bunch of opiates or something. It was, it was talking about even large groups of varying sizes, even as Paul re- we read, as Paul says, a group of even over 500 people at once saw the risen Christ. Even Justin Martyr from the second century Early on in the second century, he was the first Christian apologist. And in his defense of Christianity to the state that was persecuting Christians, he said, there are still people alive today who saw him raised from the dead. You can go talk to them. And that's what Paul says in his letter. He said, some are still alive today, though some have fallen asleep. Some have died. But notice how even the Christian belief transitions death into sleep. He says that though some have fallen asleep. He says that there's some still alive. You can go talk to them, even though some have died, but you can go talk to most of them. They're still alive. And so this would require us to dispense with the objection of what's called cognitive dissonance. That after Jesus' death, his disciples just couldn't handle it emotionally, so they just started claiming that he was alive that he had rose from the dead. Because if that's the case, then again, they still chose the worst way to do it. Because Jesus' body then would still have been rotting in the tomb, 
And so claiming physical resurrection is a dumb way to go. I mean, you could go for a spiritual resurrection or something like that, but they went for the physical. And now people will point out, historians will point out, that look, you know, from about 150 BC to about 150 AD, there were a lot of guys running around saying they were the Messiah. Okay? And that's true. But the Romans also got really good at killing those guys. If they got out of hand, if the group kind of started creating a ruckus, well, the Romans would just come in and they would just kill the guy. And guess what would happen? They would either go find a new guy to follow, or they would just, they would just leave it alone and go back to, you know, go back to being you know, citizens. But you know what nobody did? Nobody said, our guy who is dead is alive now. For one thing, because the Romans would go, no, he's not, he's right there. We just killed him. Right? They just drag his body back out. And so all of these objections, and, and, and if there's one that you have that, you, that we haven't talked about today or one that bothers you, you're concerned about, or you'd like to discuss, or maybe I haven't heard it before, I'd be happy to just sit down and talk with anybody about it. But, and I'm not going to, like, blast you if you have a question, right? Just like, that's, I'm, here to, I'm here to help and to discuss these things and to learn. So, but all these objections, from the historical to the natural to the psychological, they fail to explain why Christianity, Christianity came into being, let alone disprove the resurrection. And remember, that's the question that actually all these, all these theories against the resurrection, they're not trying, they're, the, their big question of unbelieving scholars is not, did the resurrection happen? They already feel like they have their answer for that. That's not their question. The question they're trying to answer is, since, since they assume the resurrection didn't happen, how in the world did Christianity become a thing? How in the world did Christianity become such a massive religion if their leader died and he wasn't raised from the dead? And, my, and what I'm saying is, is that the objections do not give us a satisfactory answer in disproving the resurrection or giving us an alternative to it. Now, I want to be careful here because I just said that you cannot prove a negative. And so it is wrong for us as Christians to go to unbelievers and say, you must disprove the resurrection because they can't do that, right? So it is, actually, it is actually incumbent upon believers, Christians, to present evidence for the resurrection, to prove the resurrection. And isn't it, isn't it interesting that so much of the preaching the apostles in the book of Acts, right at the get-go, guess what they were doing? They were proving the resurrection of Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. And so as we look at the aggregate of the evidence, the testimony, the, the historical evidence, the arguments from logic, and from the Old Testament even itself, what makes the best sense of what happened? And I would submit to you today that what makes the most sense of everything is that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. In terms of how we deem something to be true from the past, we have more evidence for the resurrection of Christ than we do have Caesar's writings of the life of Socrates or many other ancient events that we take as facts. But the reason that so many cannot accept the resurrection is because it's twofold. One, because it involves the supernatural. And number two, because it makes demands of us. Because whether Caesar crossed the Rubicon is of immaterial importance to my life, right? Doesn't matter if he did or he didn't. It's not going to matter how, what, how I live my life. But as Paul writes, if Jesus is raised from the dead, 
then death itself is swallowed up in victory for those who trust in the name of Jesus. And so this brings us to why, briefly, why the resurrection is everything. And it is because, certainly, because the resurrection is true. That's where we start. That's what we've been working on and talking about this morning. But in that passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 3 through 7, Paul reminds us that what he taught the Corinthians, and we saw it right into the letter to the believers in Corinth, he says, what I taught you about the resurrection is not a story that I made up. It was, the, it was what was delivered to me. I'm delivering someone else's mail, right? It was, it was, declare, it was what was declared to me by the eyewitnesses themselves who themselves say they were shocked to find out that Jesus was raised from the dead. And while there are many individual details that the writers of the Gospels have, they do share these basic facts, that Jesus lived, died, and was buried. That on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead, and that many people saw him and interacted with him. I mean, this, I mean, it is amazing when you think about this, and you compare this to other religions, all right? If you go look at Islam, where, do, where did Muhammad discover all his, all, everything? In a cave by himself, all right? Joseph Smith, Church of Latter-day Saints, Mormons, he discovered the golden plates. No one else saw them. There's no eyewitness testimony that they existed, and an angel took them away before anyone else could see them. Nothing verifiable. But Paul is at pains to show how the resurrection happened, and particularly according to the scriptures, because he's, talking, because he's talked to a lot of Jews and some new believers that are Gentiles. But he's saying, look, the death and the resurrection of the Messiah may not have been expected by the Jewish people of that time, but it was what the scriptures expected, what they had actually prophesied many, many years before. This is, this is a common theme in the early preaching in, of the apostles to show from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah and the, and, the, and, the, and the center point of that is his resurrection from the dead. Paul then shows the resurrection to be true because of the, uh, because of the many eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus, including the disciples. He, he mentions James, the half-brother of Jesus and then also the group of 500, and then even Paul himself. The, salvation is, the resurrection is true, and that matters because the resurrection is the hope of dying sinners. The resurrection occurred as a part of a complex activity of Jesus, the Son of God who died for the sins of his people. In his death, Jesus received the penalty that we deserve for sin, he solved the problem of death that we all face. And his resurrection brings hope of the kingdom of God. Paul writes in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ's rising of the dead is the beginning of a harvest of resurrection for those who trust in Jesus. And that resurrection then is true for those who trust in Jesus because Christ has been resurrected. And that he has given that resurrection life. He communicates that resurrection life to us by his Holy Spirit. And that will be fulfilled in the end 
through resurrection. And so there is certainly a mysterious nature to the resurrection of Christ. We don't understand truly what form his body was raised in because it wasn't just resuscitation. His physical body just, you know, like when at, the, at the end of like lots of movies where they, someone like, they might drown, they're not breathing, and they, you know, come back. Like, that's not what it is. It was his, his Jesus, like when they saw him, he, he was Jesus and he wasn't Jesus. There was something mysterious about him. But while we may not be able to grasp the mystery of what the resurrection will be like, what it is for Jesus, what it will be like for his people, it is clear that the hope of resurrection is the, is the victory over death itself for the people of God. And so look, there are, there are people who may hear this today and say, look, fine, it's probable, I don't have a response, it's probable that Jesus is resurrected. I still don't care. Jesus is resurrected, so what? Okay, and you know, to that person I say, well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Um, you know, if you want to talk about more, I'm here. Uh, and I hope that you'll reconsider. Because to confess the resurrection may be true and not then trust in the gospel itself is to leave yourself open to the judgment of God in the end. But there are others who say, you know, well, I, I, I don't actually have a response. I, I've, I can't say anything against what I heard. I'd like to do more research. But I also, I just can't bring myself to believe. I just can't cross that line at this moment. And, th- and that's okay. But I would challenge you to investigate it, to look into it. Take six weeks. Study the Gospel of John with another Christian. Do something like that. Because what's it going to hurt you, right? Worst case scenario is you looked into it. But if you're willing to hear today, to hear this, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins and was raised for you on the third day to give you eternal life by simply trusting in his name, well then, if you'll hear and believe, then eternal life and joy is yours today. And for those believers here today, those who are struggling with the specter of death, enduring loss and sorrow in this moment. I pray you remember the glory and the joy and the hope that is in the resurrection of Christ. I pray that you would be reminded of the promises of the gospel that are still yours, that still will be fulfilled tomorrow and in the day when your physical life gives out on this earth, when you stand before God, and in the very end in the judgment which you will not have to face because Christ has faced it for you. And in the end, you will be given eternal life and glory and joy in the kingdom. And not for any works you have done, but all by grace through faith in his name. And so the point here today, the reason that resurrection is everything for us, is that because Jesus is resurrected, we too will be resurrected by faith. In his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you show us mercy and grace in the name of your blessed Son. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us to the cross and then lead us to the empty tomb. We pray that you would revive our hope today. It's easy to get distracted in the world, 
It is easy to get distracted in our own pain and sorrows and loss. And not that we should ignore those things, but that you remind us that by the death and the resurrection of your son, that he can handle all the pain, all the sorrow, all, all that we have to bear and to bring that, is, that, is, that, is, that we can't carry anymore. He can bear it. He has borne it. And he has won victory over it. And so, Father, we pray that we would consider the resurrection of Christ this morning and that you would lead us to the truth of joy and glory in the name of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.